Good morning. I'm Grace, and I'll be taking our first Bible reading today. Um, Dave will be doing the second one. You'll normally find me here on a Sunday with my husband, Mark, and also my little children, Annabelle and Mitchell, um, and also on Thursday mornings with a wonderful group of ladies um, in our growth group reading the Bible together. So let's pray. To, um, let's read the Bible now. Um, the first reading from Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 to 17. You'll find it on screen there as well as in the Pew Bible on page 867. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour out her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of great angel, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast the testimony about Jesus. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, I'm David, or Dave. Uh, I'm part of this service as well with uh, my wife, Jen, and we have two young children, Josh and Sophie. Uh, I'm also part of a, a growth group on Tuesday night, a really encouraging one, where we actually try and get our whole family involved, and so it's been really encouraging to see um, all of us being able to do that and grow connections together. And we're going to keep reading this morning, um, Revelation 13, so from our Bibles in the pews, uh, that's on page 867. 
The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard that has feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the hands of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the beast, and they also worshipped, uh, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, "Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it?" But the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, and to exercise its authority for forty-two months. It opens. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God, and to slander His name and His dwelling place, and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, and it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave. To receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is six hundred and sixty-six. Well, good morning. My name is James Macbeth.、Uh, I'm also part of the team that pastors、uh, this particular congregation.、Uh, it's also my privilege to have been part of a team that put on a men's night last night up at Bill's shed, Bill Miller's shed up at Terry Hills.、Uh, it was great. 150 men ate and drank and heard、uh, the gospel、uh, wedded to particular lives. Our own James Francis gave his testimony, and Dave Mansfield came and spoke.、Uh, if you know someone who was there, ask them about the night. Get them to tell you. Uh, what we did and what we heard, but great evening. We'll do it again and、uh, get in early next year.
Friends, it is an ancient military adage or proverb that if you're going to go to war, you need to know your own strength. You need to know your cause, to believe in it, and to know when to press it home and when to hold back. But you also need to know your enemy. You need to know what drives him. How is he likely to act or respond? What resources are at his disposal? We can see this, can't we, going on in the Ukraine struggle at the moment. Putin trying to figure out Zelensky and NATO, them trying to figure out what is driving Putin. Why is he acting in the way that he is? Uh, and there's also all sorts of, sort of behind-the-scenes intelligence trying to garner that sort of knowledge. We've seen, haven't we, from the opening chapter of Revelation that this final letter of the Bible collects Old Testament anew and presents it to us in this epic vision of Jesus. The all-powerful Alpha and Omega. Jesus who is Lord of history. He is Lion and he is the Lamb. He does this so that his people in every age are ready for the trials and suffering before he returns. In this letter, he is equipping you and me, he is equipping us for war. And in chapter 12 and 13, he provides the most sustained teaching to be found anywhere in the Bible about his enemy and ours, Satan, that ancient serpent called the devil who leads the whole world astray. Now from Genesis 3 onward, we've known that Satan is real, he is deceptive and he is dangerous. And we encounter him, don't we, from time to time in God's word, most notably in Job, in the Old Testament, tempting Jesus in the wilderness, and then tempting Judas right before Jesus is crucified. But here, in these chapters, we're given the sort of intelligence that the Russians and the Ukrainians would kill for. But the Lord gives us this knowledge. He wants us to know our enemy. Now, whilst there's a lot more to reveal beyond these two chapters, and we won't cover everything here, but here the Lord makes clear at least two things that I want to drive to today. One, the enemy is defeated and he is cast down. And secondly, he works through people, which is where we encounter the beast, the mark and the number. So let's look at that first point here. As we open chapter 12, there's no obvious link to where we were in chapter 11 so like as he does a number of times in Revelation, we've got to assume that he's just simply shifting the angle and looking at the same scenario in a new, fresh way. God is victorious and his persecuted people need to endure to the end. That's what we've heard so far. Here it is again, but from a slightly different angle. In classic apocalyptic terms, we encounter a woman and a dragon. The woman is at once radiant, isn't she? She's absolutely stunning. She's regal, sun and moon. But at the very same time, she is vulnerable. She's in pain. She's a woman giving birth. The fact that she's crowned with 12 stars pointing to the 12 tribes, I think alludes to the fact that this represents faithful Israel giving birth to the Messiah, the one who will rule the nations, Jesus. And because of that, it allows that image to naturally go on as the chapter opens to mean the church, God's faithful people as a whole. We saw it, didn't we, back in chapter 7. God's people, his people, 
old and new, constitute the true Israel. Sealed, safe, belonging to him. Now this beautiful, vulnerable figure is immediately under threat from an enormous red dragon. Multi-headed and violent, the ancient serpent, Satan. And he's waiting to devour the child as soon as birth happens to stop God's saving work. It is a nightmare scenario, isn't it? No one is as vulnerable as a woman giving birth. But it immediately brings to mind two points in history, biblical history. Back in Exodus 1, when Pharaoh orders the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male babies. And then, of course, Herod's massacre of all the boys in Bethlehem after Jesus is born in Matthew 2. In April, after Easter, we're going to be opening Exodus. And as we see there, God guards the baby Moses, doesn't he? The little boy in the reeds. And he brings his people out of slavery into safety in the wilderness. Revelation 12 is full of Exodus references. I wonder if you picked them. But even more vitally, the baby Jesus is saved and in the flight of Mary and Joseph to Egypt, we've got a little microcosm of the protection that God is promising here for his people. That refuge that is here, that is him. In this passage, we have the son snatched up immediately to God. There's no reference to what happens between his birth and his ascension because in this chapter, God is driving hard at a particular point that he wants to make. And it's this. There is a long history of enmity between God, God's people, and the serpent. And at each step, the enemy has failed to stop the Lord's saving work and his protection of his own. He can smack stars around all he wants, but he can't get his hands on two little newborn boys. And what follows in that heavenly battle is a reminder, isn't it, that everything that we encounter today, everything that is material, temporal, that we can see, has around it, in it and through it a spiritual or invisible reality. One that we've already acknowledged this morning in the fact that we've spoken to our Lord who we cannot see but we know is present. The Lord only gives us glimpses of this at times, doesn't he, in scripture. But here he shows John and us that for all the war that is waged in our immediate context, the primary battle fought and concluded is a heavenly one, a cosmic one. And it's a battle that Satan has lost. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. Now this striving not only to have a place in heaven but as we'll see the, the place, the primary place, God's place, fails. And they're hurled down. He is kicked out. Not only is he and his army not strong enough to overcome other angels, but the voice that follows in 10 to 11 shows that the greatest defeat, the most fatal wound here, does not come from Michael or some angelic sort of horde, but from the Messiah and from those who stand with Jesus. The name Satan means accuser. And as we see back in Job and then here in verse 10, his specialty 
His basic purpose for being is to stand and accuse and slander God's people before God, to tear them down before the one who made them. And we in our sin, let's be honest, we give him plenty of ammunition, don't we? If we just took my sin from the last week or month, Satan could stand before God with a very thick volume. Look at what James thought there. Did you hear what he said? Look at what he failed to do again and again and again. This is dark, dark stuff. That's sin. This man should be condemned. James should be a dead man, finished. To which Jesus would respond, I know. I know. I know it all. And I have paid for that with my life. I was condemned. I died. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. James is a forgiven man. And the only thing finished is your life as an accuser. Friends, haven't we seen this again and again? As soon as we open Revelation, the big battle, the most costly and bloody one, is a finished one. It happened before John received this vision. It is the cross of Christ and the empty tomb where God does battle with sin, death and the devil. And he wins. In Colossians 2, Paul describes Jesus' bloody, grubby, brutal death on a cross. A death on our account as a huge, glorious Roman victory parade just piling through the city under a great arch. Cross, victory parade, how does that work? He says this in Colossians 2. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the weapons of accusation are useless when the sin has been paid for. And those who would try to wield them, as Satan does, are now fit only for mockery in the heavenly realm. They're beaten. And it is this disarming of Satan and his kind and the great saving victory that is being proclaimed in Revelation 12, 10 to 12. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God night and day has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The triumph of Jesus is shared with all who stand with him as Lord. 
Is that you? As it is me? In Christ, we are victorious. And that finds such potent expression in sharing that gospel, unashamedly, publicly, standing for Jesus, marching with him. Even in the face of those who would kill us and murder Christians because of it. So here's the first thing in these chapters that God wants us to know about our enemy. He is defeated and he has been cast down. He has no place in heaven. In verse 12, there's rejoicing called for in that heavenly realm. But woe to the earth and sea, because the devil's gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. You see, the enemy cannot lay a hand on God and he can't even really compete with God's own angels. So he turns on those made in his image, those who keep his commandments and hold to their testimony about Jesus. Being the woman of Revelation 12, and that's us, can be very dangerous, very costly thing here and now. Because we have a cornered, defeated, embittered enemy. How many accounts of war do we have of sides that are truly beaten and they fight to the bitter end? Uselessly, damagingly. That's what we've got. He is cornered by the fact of the risen, enthroned Christ and a clock that is just counting down to the final judgment. His time is short. And even as he rages against the church, we find in chapter 13 that he works most damagingly, most insidiously through people. So part two this morning. The fact that it is the dragon in chapter 12 depicted waiting to devour the baby Moses and ultimately the infant Jesus, it reveals to us, doesn't it, that Satan was working through proxies, working very deliberately through Pharaoh back in Exodus time and through Herod, respectively. And just as we see Satan desperately trying to play God with all his crowns and his horns and all the rest of it, the most insidious way that he sort of apes God or copies God is the way that he uses people. We know, don't we, from the creation of man and woman in God's image that we're made to steward the earth. From the very beginning, God is more than happy. In fact, it's by design that we share his work. We are his agents in the world. Our sin has shattered that. But even as we watch that long salvation story unfold, again and again, he just works through people. Abraham, all the patriarchs, works through men and women speak his word, live by faith, prepare for the Son, and once the Son has come, to tell of him when Jesus has gone back to his Father, having died, risen and ascended. And all of this we're helped by the Holy Spirit. He teaches us, doesn't he, even today, right now, to worship the Son, Jesus. But what makes Revelation 13 so disturbing and important is that it gives evidence of a dark Trinity, a devil who shamelessly copies our triune God and develops beasts who play Christ-like, spirit-like roles as he tries to bring people to himself and away from God. 
As the two beasts arise and act here in 13.1 and 11 respectively, the first is like Jesus, isn't he? He's given great power, given a throne, and he even appears to have come back from some sort of fatal wound. The second beast, like the spirit who loves to point to Jesus, causes great signs and has people worship the first beast. They are strange, terrifying figures. But the real terror, the real tragedy lies in this fact. These are not animals. These are not monsters. These are human beings acting monstrously. That's the real terror here. They're not animals, they're not monsters, they're human beings acting monstrously. In verse 18, the number of the beast, 666, is the number of a man. Or in an alternate translation, it is humanity's number. It's not some secret code of emperor's names or an occult magic spell. It's simply a six desperately trying to be a seven. That perfect, complete number for God. Trying and eternally failing. Because creature can never be creator. We who are made can never be God. It is the number of sinful humanity, just like Satan, uselessly, damagingly playing God in vain. The beasts here are those who are deceived and spurred by Satan and simply using their power and influence to act out in full what sin does to every human being, great and small. Back in the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes 7.29, the teacher observes this, This only have I found. God made humanity upright, but people have gone in search of many schemes. There's a subtle double meaning here. God made us upright morally, but sin means we've gone after many schemes, sly plans. But the other meaning here is that it plays on the fact that we were man made to stand upright on two legs. But we have gone down onto four legs after many schemes. And this is why the use of beast in Revelation is so powerful and grim. Because we're being shown how people made in the image of God, greater than any of the animals... People made in the image of God, now slaves to sin, prey to Satan's lives, behave and can behave like animals in every generation. Be it Pharaoh in Egypt, or Herod in first century Palestine, be it the Roman Empire as a whole, or any number of individuals, governments, or cultural and religious forces since. The beasts, no doubt originally referring to the Roman Empire and its emperors, are anyone or anything that styles itself as God, as worthy of worship. Anyone or anything that posit themselves as the ultimate hope, the ultimate refuge, the final authority. And that includes any religious belief that does not have the risen, ascended Christ at its very beating heart. Emperor Nero had coins made with his profile. On the flip side of that one, it says, Saviour of the world. The emperors were deified. They demanded cult worship 
That's the context into which John was writing. And you see, that's the blasphemy or the sacred offence here playing God. Captured in the multiple horns and crowns, glorifying in power and thrones, compelling worship from people through fear and coercion. From people who don't know any differently due to their own sin and their own blindness to God. They also worshipped the beast and asked who's like the beast? Who can wage war against it? That one verse has just broken my heart this week because I know the answer to that question. We know the answer to those questions. But how many that we live with, work with, study with, live around, have no idea that's their question. Here is the deceptive power of Satan working through sinful people, leaving others cornered with no apparent alternative. Now we can't unpack all of the possible historical references here today, but it is worth landing on that one about the mark of the beast in 13 verse 16, 17. Like the number, this has inspired any number of heavy metal songs, and drawn a galaxy of theories. With the advent of barcodes, which I'm not sure when they came in, but they've been a particular favourite of preachers down through the last couple of decades. The beast who also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, two things are evident here. Do you recall back in chapter 7, the special seal or mark that God gives to his people, his saved, safe people? That seal is the Holy Spirit in residence, a sign that we belong to Jesus, that we are the men and women who can stand on that final day and not run and hide. That's the significance of that seal. And here in 13, we see these fake saviours and lords, these beasts, doing the same in a parody of that seal, asserting ownership of great and small alike. Now, in its original context, it may well have been a stamp that depicted the emperor. It may well have been a business pass in certain contexts. But whatever it was, visible or invisible, it set the person apart as belonging to the dominant cultural political, religious authority, not Christian. That's what the mark said. And note it's all about this world here and now. It's got nothing to do and no power on that final day, does it? It's all about now. Now we know that by the time John was writing that following Jesus was damaging to people's businesses and to their wealth. Most cities operated their markets and products and ports through very powerful guilds and membership was, was absolutely mandatory. You had to belong to this guild if you wanted to buy or sell, if you wanted to get through that door. We know from Acts 19 that Christians were hated for their effect on local business. So this looks like a basic test of loyalty based on livelihood. So this cuts deep. Do you belong to us? Do you belong to the world? The beast? 
Well, do you belong to Jesus? Because if it's Jesus, you don't get to do business. That door is locked to you. And all the consequences that come for it, a family with no income, in a society where there is no government safety net, there's no insurance, there's nothing. Tuesday night in, in my growth group, we were going through the letters and John Murray led us through those and we were reading the letter to Smyrna and there Jesus says, look, I know your afflictions and I know your poverty. And I and we, we reflected on, I wonder how many of those residents of Smyrna were wealthy, were well-off, were well-employed before they started following Jesus. Now they are the afflicted and they are the poor. How many of us have felt the subtle or overt question in our workplace, in our uni, our school, our club, our home? Do you belong to us? Do you belong to the world? To the beast? What a Jesus. Why aren't you flying the flag? Why aren't you why haven't you got the badge on? I noticed you didn't sign that. Why? How soon will it be that our faith in Jesus, our membership of this church, will cost us serious money? Cost you and me serious money. A job, a place at uni, a seat at the table, any voice in public, official protection and justice in the courts. For some, this is already occurring and all of this is mild, isn't it? Compared to those called not to shrink from death for the name of Jesus. Back in John's day, and in our day. In conclusion, whilst we've only touched on parts of these chapters, let's go away with at least two things about our enemy. We need to know that Satan is defeated and cast down. There is no place in heaven for those who would accuse, for Jesus answered all of it by his blood shed on the cross for us. Satan rages against the church for his time is short. The clock is ticking. And he works most damagingly through people. The beast, the mark, the number. These aren't monsters but individuals, groups and cultural religious forces acting monstrously. Blaspheming the Lord by playing God and demanding worship. And as it says in 13 verse 10, this calls for patient endurance on our part it calls for faithfulness on the part of God's people brothers and sisters let's remain prayerful alert and courageous so that when the question comes and it may come today it may come this week do you belong to us to the world to the beast no I belong to Jesus 666? Six, six, six? No. Seven.